0: What's up, What's up, Church, of Church? Good morning. Good morning. Good to see everybody. Happy Sunday to you. If not, if, I, if I've not met you yet, how about that? Uh, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the pastors here. We're glad that you are with us this morning. Glad that you're joining us by live stream. And if you are, um, thanks for worshiping with us. You could be doing anything right now, and you probably are. But you know, one of those things is is tuning in to worship with us. So we're glad for that. We are in the third week of Advent. And, uh, and so we're going as we have uh, done in the last two weeks, we're going to look at two passages of Scripture. So I'm gonna, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, and then we're going to turn in the New Testament to Luke chapter 1, verse 46 through 55. So Isaiah seven fourteen, very familiar verse of Scripture, and then Luke chapter 1, verses 36 through 46 through 55 and as is our tradition, we'll read these out loud together. The words will be on the screen. Isaiah 7, 14. This is what the prophet says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Turn all the way over to the Gospel of Luke, starting in verse 46. Here's what the uh, apostle writes. And Mary said, He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. When we come to you, it's a good reminder that we're, we're coming in need. We need uh, you like a, like a baby needs its mother, like the morning needs the sun, like uh, the, the, the desert needs the springs of water. And so, uh, Lord, that's our confession today, that we need you. More than that, we want you. We want to, to meet with you, to commune with you. In, in, in prayer, we come both with our needs, we come with a relational need as well, and so God, we pray that you meet that today by your Spirit, that we pray that we would sense your nearness in your Word today, that you feed us as we need to be fed spiritually, but more than that, Lord God, we pray that we meet Jesus, and that we would see him as he is, uh, with the humility that he uh, walked with on the earth, and the way that you exalted him. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, Amen. Amen. So we have been endeavoring in December to to celebrate Advent. And Advent is the, a word, the Latin word that means coming or arrival. It's like the celebration of Christmas, where we celebrate, uh, you know, lights and um, presents and gifts and all the the pomp and circumstance that comes along with Christmas. During Advent, we celebrate that Jesus has come. But we all are also anticipating the fact that the Bible says that he will come again. And we've been looking at the traditional Advent themes of, of hope and love, of joy and of peace. And today we're looking at the, uh, the theme of joy. And, and really today the, the focus on joy is, is this penchant that God has, this predilection that God has to lift up the lowly. And I I think my hope for us today is that we not only see that in Scripture, that God lifts up the holy, but that we see God's propensity to do that in our own lives. And I think uh, more than anything, when we do that, one of the keys to lifting up the lowly is when we do that ourselves, we will experience a measure of joy. So that's my hope that we would see today. Uh, We read two texts of of Scripture, Uh, one a very familiar passage where... Uh, the prophet, 700 years before Jesus is born, is uh, is prophesying that, a, that a, a, a child will be born through a virgin birth. And then when we come to the Luke text, we see who that virgin is. And as we read on in Luke, we find out how that birth sort of comes about. The particular text that we're going to look at today is called the Magnificat. If you look down in your Bible, you'll see that... Uh, you know, the, the redactors of the Bible have come, and they've actually given it that, that title. That word, Magnificat, is a Latin word. Uh, it's where we get the word "magnificent." The, uh, the Magnificat are the words that Mary says as she's speaking words of, of rejoicing to her relative Elizabeth. And perhaps you've read the backstory. If not, later on today, go back into to the beginnings of Luke chapter 1 and 2, and you'll get the whole Christmas story. But it it begins with the angel Gabriel coming to Mary and telling her that she's been chosen, chosen of the Lord to conceive a son. And uh, when she bears him, she'll call his name Jesus. We see that in chapter one, verse 32. Mary's not married, she's a virgin. Um, It's obvious at this point, given who she is, that this news, even from an angel, would not have been welcome news. It would not have given her any measure of joy. Mary is barely twelve or thirteen years old, and um, that's not anything for us in our I mean, in our culture. That would be like, ah, wow, how could that happen? In their culture, it was normal. Um, the life expectancy of a of a woman in the in the first century was was barely thirty eight years old, and so. Um, Mary would have, uh, you know, she would have gotten married early so that she could have kids early in the, in the, in the thinking that she's not going to live much longer than that. That would have been the thing that she was supposed to do. So Mary is barely 12 or 13 years old. She's newly engaged to a man named Joseph. She's going to be pregnant, and in this instance, she's going to be pregnant by, a per- by somehow uh, not the guy that she's going to marry. Okay? So that would have called a, caused a, uh, an issue. Like she would have been terrified at this news. Mary's a Jew, so she would have known the scriptures. The scriptures back in Deuteronomy uh, would have alerted her that um, anyone that sleeps with someone or that's not their spouse is, is going to meet a, a, a fateful penalty penalty of death. If you are engaged to someone and found to have been intimate with someone else, that also incurred a penalty of death. And this, so I think this word from Gabriel really is a death sentence for Mary. That is, if she had not been visited by an angel, right, one of the one of the two named angels in the Bible. And so, Gabriel brings her this news, and, and Gabriel tells her not to be afraid, that, that God had favored her. But even as we think about God choosing her and favoring her, I think in this moment, when she first learns all that news, There's no measure of joy in Mary's heart about what's about to happen. She's confused. She's wondering what's going on. And so she immediately leaves this Annunciation from Gabriel and visits her relative Elizabeth. She travels the hill country to to, to, uh, Judah on the outskirts of Jerusalem. This would have been an eight-day journey for a 12-year-old girl who just found out that she's going to be pregnant. She arrives at the home of of the priest Zachariah and, and his wife Elizabeth. They are an elderly couple. They have a, a, a neat backstory. also. You can read that in uh, the beginnings of, of Luke's gospel and also Matthew's gospel. And what happens is uh, this elderly couple had been trying to get pregnant and were unable to. And so Zechariah is doing his duty as a priest uh, in the temple, and an angel comes to him and tell him tells him that they're going to uh, have a miraculous conception. And so in this moment, Elizabeth... Uh, gets pregnant, and she's about six months pregnant with none other than John the Baptist, the forerunner of Jesus. And so Mary comes through the door, and as soon as she gets into the house and gives a simple greeting, Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant, this baby inside of her, albeit John the Baptist, leaps for joy. The text says that Mary, uh, that Elizabeth, is filled with the Holy Spirit, and she knows in her heart that Mary is pregnant, and the child she's carrying is none other than the Messiah. So Elizabeth cries out, and if you are Catholic, you you've you you'll recognize some of these words. They're they're sort of taking verse 42 in in Luke chapter one and adding a, a kind of a blessing on Mary from Elizabeth. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with you. Here are the words from verse 42. Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb, Jesus. And so in response to Elizabeth's blessing of her, this revelation that she gets that you're carrying someone that's special, this leads Mary, for the first time, to feel any expression of joy. And her expression of joy happens to be the words that we receive from her that we're calling the magnificat. Now, we don't know if Mary wrote this. We assume that she did. Maybe they, these were uh, uh, words that she learned and memorized when she was young, but the Bible attributes, attributes them to her, so we're going to assume that they are are hers. What she's giving us is not just uh, a magnificat. She's giving us uh, a psalm. These are words that are, are really uh, fit the description of a beautiful song that could be sung. And the song declares how Mary's heart is rejoicing with God because of the things that God has done to her personally and to people like her. And so, that's a long introduction, but what we wanna look at today is particularly this Psalm of Mary and what it teaches us about God and more than that, God's will for our lives that might lend to joy. But before I get to that, did you notice I brought a prop up here with me today? What, what is this? Charlie Brown. Charlie Brown. Christmas tree, right? So Charlie Brown Christmas, uh, you have to be a hermit living on a rock to have not ever seen Charlie Brown Christmas. Charlie Brown Christmas is a very special animation. Uh, it goes all the way back to December 1995 before most of you were born. I was born that year, just a couple months, uh, a month prior to that. So in December 1965, 65, what am I saying? Yeah, yeah. December '65. Anybody here born December '65? Besides me, a couple of you. Like, <laughs> you're funny. Yeah, December '65. December '65. There were only three TV stations in our in our country, and so if you wanted to watch TV, not many, not very many people had TVs. But if you wanted to watch TV, you only had three stations compared to our 500 cable, or you know, however many cable stations we have. Today and so when Charlie Brown Christmas debuted December 9th nineteen sixty-five, uh, half of America would have watched it. Okay, that's how seen it would have been. Um, there's only one other show in the history of Christmas animations that's that's really outshone, out debuted Charlie Brown Christmas. Guess what it is? Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, which debuted. 1964, one year prior to that, but in, in regards to Charlie Brown Christmas, it has shown every, every year since, uh, 55 years and running, and uh, the statistic is about 6 million people still watch it every year. If you've got Apple TV+, Plus, I mean, you can just Google um, Charlie Brown Christmas and it's going to show up just on YouTube somewhere, just the whole 32 minutes of, of the episode. Now, some of you are wondering why I'm talking about Charlie Brown Christmas in the midst of talking about uh, Mary and the annunciation of of her pregnancy, And and it's simply this. I think there's a semblance between Charlie Brown and the story that this tree brings about and the story of Mary getting pregnant with baby Jesus, and it's that God favors the lowly. You know the story of Charlie Brown, right? Charlie Brown, Christmas tree. Charlie Brown and his classmates at school are putting on a Christmas pageant. And Charlie Brown is the director, although Lucy is kind of in charge. And so Lucy sends Charlie Brown to the Christmas tree lot with his buddy Linus and his blanket. Uh, and the task is, I want you to get a great tree. Like the biggest, the bestest, the brightest, the, the most wonderful tree. Actually, Lucy's instructions are I want you to get a modern tree, and so Charlie Brown, being the person that he is, goes to a Christmas tree lot, kind of like the Christmas tree lots that we have popping up around our area now. And he and Linus are walking through, and Charlie Brown is trained on this tree that looks kind of sorta just like this one. And I mean, look at it; it's kind of pathetic, right? It, it's this is a, a replica. But this looks kind of like the Christmas tree that you see in the, in the animation. And I mean, many of us have gone out to get Christmas trees. And when we go out getting a Christmas tree, whether you go to a, a Christmas tree farm and cut your own down or you go to one of the lots that are here, you're looking for a specific kind of tree. Uh, you want one that's going to fit your house and the, the dimensions of your house. But pretty much, we want it to be, you know, kind of tall, full, no gaping holes. You want it to to match the the joy and the splendor that you want it to bring to your Christmas celebration. Not so much this tree, right? Most of us would walk right past this Christmas tree. Not Charlie Brown. Check out this video. I don't know, Linus. I just don't know. Well, I guess we'd better concentrate on finding a nice Christmas tree. I suggest we try those searchlights, Charlie Brown. This really brings Christmas clothes to a person. Brown. Remember what Lucy said? This doesn't seem to fit the modern spirit. I don't care. We'll decorate it and it'll be just right for our play. Besides, I think it needs me. Mary's like this tree. If this tree could be a metaphor for things that people see and reject it when they see it, Mary is kind of like this tree, that it's it's unexpected, it's insignificant, nobody would want it. But this tree, if we see it right, is something that we could have hope in, or we can see beyond the facade of it, and notice that there's something um, interesting, maybe even important. Maybe there's beauty in this tree, and such was the life of Mary. This is also the theme of, of Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Remember Rudolph? He's the 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 reindeer with the shine, the very shiny nose. Um, and if you saw it, you would even say it glows. All the other reindeer, you, you guys know the song, right? Santa picks him because his nose glowed, and it was going to be able to. He was going to be able to lead that sleigh uh, through the the blustery night to get the, the presents delivered for for Christmas. And therein is the the theme of not just Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer and Charlie Brown, but also the theme for uh, Mary and the Magnificat. This is the prevalent theme in scripture. God is concerned with the rejected, the the marginalized, those that are pushed down in society. That God chooses, and he even uses, he blesses. He sees potential in and lifts up those kind of like us who are pushed to the side. And that's what's happening in Charlie Brown. That's what's happening in Rudolph. More specifically, that's what's happening in the Magnificat. Look what, look what um, the gospel writer Luke says in regards to Mary's words: "My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, now on, from now on, all generations will call me blessed, for He who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy." Is his name. Train your eyes on verse 48. The first part of that, he has looked with favor on the humble estate of his servant. This is Mary's testimony about herself. She's calling herself humble. The Greek word for humble is the is the word uh, tapenos. It's, it has the sense of lowliness. It's it's someone that, that that's maybe humiliated in their life. It's something that's unimportant. It's a, a word that we would use to describe those who were the lowliest of society. And that kind of, sort of, describes the whole lot of Mary and, and her life. It, it captures what Mary is living out. Mary's from the other side of the tracks. She's a nobody. Again, in first century Palestine, the life expectancy of a, of a young woman was 38 years old, and so she would have been expected as a young girl, as soon as her first menstrual cycle started, to get married, to start having kids so that they could contribute to society. And so that's the track that Mary's on. She lives in Nazareth, and Nazareth wasn't a place of significance for anybody. No one purposefully went to Nazareth because there was nothing going on in it. There, in the first century, there were no significant roads other than dirt roads leading into Nazareth. There were no roads, significant roads, leading out of it. Only about 100 people in first century life lived in Nazareth. And yet Mary lived in Nazareth. Archaeologists tell us that first century residents of Nazareth lived in the very cheapest forms of housing in the Holy Land at that time. What kind of housing was that? They lived in caves. I mean, life was that simple. Nobody's lived in Nazareth. Mary lived in Nazareth. Which emphasizes the point of how interesting it is that God would send one of his two named angels to this place called Nazareth and pick a woman who would play such an important role in human history, bearing the, the birth of the Christ child. But this is precisely what God does. You may recall after Jesus' baptism, he's gathering his disciples to him. He gathers Andrew and his brother uh, uh, Peter and his brother Andrew, and he goes to Nathaniel. they go to Nathaniel, and when they found Nathaniel, they immediately say to him in excitement, we found the Messiah, and Nathaniel retorts back, well, who is he? And they say, he's Jesus of Nazareth, and then you get these infamous words in John 146 from Nathaniel. he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, that's the, the sense of what Nazareth is to so the people that are living there. So can you see it? Can you see how insignificant this moment is, and the people that are playing around it? Mary is just like the Christmas tree that Charlie Brown picked out, but it wasn't just Mary. It's also her soon-to-be husband Joseph as well. Joseph was a carpenter. When you think carpenter, don't think first century. Don't think 21st century carpenter. The things that carpenters do today. A first-century carpenter was called a tecton. That's the Greek word uh, for carpenter uh, that the Bible uses. A, a tecton. Um, because there weren't many trees in, in first century Middle East, uh, didn't do a lot of tree work. The word actually means um, artisan, someone that worked with their hands. That would have included working with wood. But very likely, Joseph was nothing more than a handyman. When, when in that day, if you were really good, you were called an architecton. That means a, a, a super uh, artisan. That, that's not the, uh, the description the Bible gives for Joseph. He was just a tecton. And so again, can you see the the insignificance that the Bible is painting on this couple? Can you get the picture? There's nothing special about these people. In fact, if we could say anything, it's, it's the fact that they are less than special. And yet, God brings the two of them together. Mary consumes. Nine months later, it's time for Mary to give birth. And you read the rest of the story in Luke 2. Luke two tells us there's a powerful emperor, Caesar Augustus in Rome, and he requires everyone to return to their home of record to get registered. Today it would be like our census, if, if our census made us go to our home of birth to be registered with the country. Joseph is from Bethlehem, and so they travel a nine days' journey all the way from where they are to Bethlehem. And remember, marriage by this time is nine months pregnant. So they get to Bethlehem, and the story goes that Bethlehem is so small that there is no room for them at the end. It would be like us going to uh, some, uh, perhaps, uh, small town, and the Holiday Inn Express is booked, the Marriott is booked, the Motel 6, the Motel 8, it, like there's no room for us to even lay our heads. And so what do Mary and Joseph do? They They go to the only place they can go. They go to the stable. In the first century, stables weren't wooden barns like we associate with putting horses or, or animals in. A stable was more like a cave carved out of the ground, and animals only were put there at night to, to keep them secure. And so Mary and Joseph go to be a part of this horrible, terrible, albeit beautiful, first Christmas night. Mary has the baby. She wraps him in swaddling clothes and lays him in a manger, and then some guests start to appear. The first guest, the animals. Mooing, y- meowing, whatever and the animals that were doing, they were, they were doing that there. As Mary is having this baby, a star shines in the sky on a field not too far away. An angel shows up, and it attracts some shepherds. And those shepherds are beckoned to go and to greet this this child. It's interesting that of all the things the Bible tells us about shepherds, it gives us this line. It says, "There were shepherds keeping watch over their flock by night." And so that's a significant line because it means that these people were they were working the night shift, right? And y'all work night shift. They were they were working the night shift. First century Palestine shepherds were the lowest rung of labor on the socio-economic ladder. These night shift shepherds very likely didn't own the sheep they were watching. They were hired hands. And who is it that God invites to come and see this amazing thing as it's happening? He invites shepherds. Here's what we read in Luke 2, verse 9 through 12. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord, and he will be assigned for you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And so these night shift shepherds watching over sheep that probably aren't even their own head over to Bethlehem and they see Jesus laying there in that manger. And they're the first ones alongside the animals and, and, their, and Jesus' parents that get to celebrate the birth of of the Christ. Here's what the Bible wants us to see. It wants to see that how God favors. It wants us to see God's predilection for the lowly, for those who are marginalized, for those who are pushed down in society, for those who are made to feel small, for those who are told that they are insignificant. The Bible wants us to see that God, throughout Scripture, lifts those kinds of people up. When God chooses someone to be the father of many nations, He chooses Abraham, a really uh, obscure, insignificant man who's married to a woman named Sarah, even though they're elderly and can't have children. God wants it to know that when he does allow Sarah to conceive, that it's a miracle, and it couldn't have happened without him. When God chooses the people to draw near, he chooses slaves in Egypt. When God selects someone to deliver the slaves out of Egypt, he chooses a stuttering electric goat herder in the Sinai named Moses. When God is looking for the great king who will lead this same people, he sends the prophet Samuel to find Jesse and his family. And Jesse looks over the sons of Jesse, assuming that God would select the biggest, the strongest, the smartest, the comeliest. And God says to Samuel, no, man sees the outward appearance. God sees the heart. I want you to look for something else. And he looks over them again. He comes to to David, the smallest, the youngest, the most ruddy, because David is the one after God's heart. And when God wants to bring joy to the world, he incarnates himself as a baby in the person of Jesus. And he's born to the most humbling of parents in the most humbling of situations, and he grows up to give us us joy. Question for you uh, sports fans. When you're watching TV, and you're, you don't have any, any team to root for. Say today, y'all, you know, you're gonna watch a little bit of football. Or it could be tennis. Any tennis fans in here? Say your, your, your favorite player's Roger and Roger's not playing. I mean, what do you do? Archie's, Archie's barking. He's a, he's a sports fan. A lot of times when we're watching sports and we don't have a team to root for, what do we do? We root for the underdog. Have you ever given any thought, why in the world do we root for the underdog when we don't have a, a, a team to root for? I'm going to speculate. I don't really know. But I think it's just in us. God put it in us. It's like the plan of redemption. God chooses the nobody, and such were some of us. He chooses those who are insignificant, those who may not even amount to anything. And I think that that, that, that thing that God puts in the story of redemption is put into us. We are created in the image of God. There's something inside of us that pulls us towards people who are lowly, those who are not expected to win, the nobody. Here's how Mary says it. She says, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. That's her. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things. And so Charlie Brown picks out this pathetic looking tree and he says these very obscure words. He says, I think it needs me. And prophetically, I I think Charlie Brown gets it right, doesn't he? There's, there's something about insignificance that, that attracts the heart of God. And this is what brings Mary joy. It's not, Mary's not rejoicing because of the thought of having a baby, even, even the Christ child, at least not yet. I don't think she's rejoicing because of that quite yet. In fact, she still hasn't even told Joseph by the time we read the Magnificat. Joseph doesn't even know. And if we go to Matthew's Gospel, we learn when Joseph finds out, he wants to quietly dismiss his wife and go on about his life and her life until the angel shows up to him and tells him what's, what the deal is. Now, Mary is rejoicing because God chose her, even though she was considered ins- insignificant by the world around her. And that brings me to my second point. The, the, the good news and the bad news and the, in the Magnificat. We need to recognize that what's good for Mary and that God chose her in this, in this Magnificat might not be good news for everybody. There's this phrase, good news is bad news is good news. I didn't make that up. I just thought of it and I Googled it. It's the title of a book. I've heard it somewhere. And the book has nothing to do with the Bible or spirituality. Um, But it kind of captures the biblical narrative. And here's the biblical narrative. What's good news for Mary that God lifts up the lowly was actually a pronouncement of bad news for those who were not so lowly. Here's what she says in verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Verse 53, he has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. What's good news for Mary ends up being bad news for those who, as she says in the Magnificat, are rich, the powerful, and the prideful. And one of the questions that we're presented with uh, this text, Mary's rejoicing over what God has done for her, is who are we more like? I mean, that's one of the applications to this text, right? Who are we more like? Are we more like Mary, the, 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 one of the most insignificant people on the planet in the first century, who God sees in her humility and chooses her to carry Christ, in other words, lifts her up? Or are we like some of those others that Mary talks about here, the, 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 the ones who are proud, the rich, the influential that she says God brings down, I think this text should make some of us a little nervous. We should tremble a little bit. Perhaps it should make us, most of us uncomfortable, but uh, by all accounts, compared to the rest of the world, all of us fit into this category of those who are affluent, influential, and sometimes even prideful. And so this Magnificat is good news for Mary, but it's potentially bad news for us. If you read the Bible, you find out the Bible uh, is kind of neutral in regards to wealth and power and influence. It's morally neutral in regards to, to those things. They can be used for good or for evil. I think the challenge for us is, it, it tends to, to mess with our heads. Have you ever had a friend that grew up with you, was just like you, and all of a sudden they they entered some measure of success in life? Say it was sports, or uh, they invented something, or uh, perhaps they you know were a simpleton in high school, and then all of a sudden they got some smarts, and they become some very important person. Uh, in our country, in the world, in our government, what happens when that person goes from mediocrity to mock mediocrity to, to celebrity, fame, and, and influence? Well, you stop being their friend, right? It becomes a little harder to, to call them on the phone. It becomes a little harder to, to meet up with them. They don't come to your neighborhood anymore because they got their own. Uh, pretty soon, uh, the only way you can get in touch with them is through mediators or through administrative assistants or through agents. They sort of are dismissing themselves from you and you you don't have access to them anymore. And the truth is, that could happen really to to any of us. Success can mess with any of our heads, even if if it's such a moderate uh, level of success. It can mess with our heads, it can mess with our hearts and make us a different kind of person. That can happen to, to any of us. I think that's why the Apostle Paul, when he talks about money, he doesn't say money is evil, but he does say money is the root of all kinds of evil. That many who seek after money, wealth, and power find themselves hurt with its many piercings. The adage is power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And I think that's what happens in us. It happens to us if we chase power, affluence, and money. And that's probably why the Apostle Paul, when he writes his letters to, to different churches, gives commands, like what he gives in Romans twelve sixteen 16, to, to, hum, to humble ourselves and to associate with the humble. Here's what he says in Romans twelve sixteen: Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, what's interesting about Paul writing these these words, firstly, it's in one of my favorite texts of the Bible. Romans 12 gives us this picture of this is what it looks like to be a Christian living in community with other people. This is the character that you're supposed to have as as a believer in Jesus. These are the marks of a Christian. But what's interesting about this is he's writing to Christians in the first century who themselves were former slaves, or who were or like from the lower class, they were part of the marginalized. But still, he has to tell them, "Don't be haughty, don't be prideful, and associate with the lowly." Which proves to us, anyone can be, uh, anyone can lose the sense of themselves when they when they are pulled from a lowly estate into one that's uh, perhaps more more high. The the epistle writer James says, "God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." James is stealing that from Proverbs 3.34. And the idea of opposes is a Greek word that's used in sporting. And it's as if you are, like you got your dukes up and you're going against somebody as if, as if you're in a fight. But, but here's the catch. It says God opposes the proud, right? And so, actually, you're in a match with God. You've got your dukes up. God's got his up. His are bigger. And, and, and there's, there's no way you're going to win that fight, right? God opposes The proud, thank God he gives grace to the humble. A few verses down, James teaches us this, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Here's what this is saying. It's saying anybody, even those that have a a lofty idea of who they are, the powerful, the influential, the wealthy, anyone can choose to humble themselves. It's an act of choice. But here's the thing. If we wait for God to humble you, it's going to be painful or embarrassing, probably both. But if you humble yourself before the Lord, He's going to lift you up. And I think the same idea—it's the same idea—that Mary is, is giving us in that Magnificat, verse 48. He lifts up the hope, the humble, the lowliest state. Verse 52, He lifts up those who humble themselves and exalts them. Jesus says this in the Gospels. He says, "The last will be first, the first will be last." The last will be first. The uh, uh, the first will be last. The last will be first in the kingdom of heaven. On the night when Jesus is betrayed, what did he do? He gets down on his knees and he washes the disciples' feet. And with that, he he says this "All, All of you, you're wondering who's going to be the greatest in my kingdom. And I want to tell you, that's not for me to decide. That's only for my father to decide. And in fact, if you're wondering about who's going to be the greatest, you've already missed it. And as he washes their feet, what he's doing is showing them this is what greatness looks like. The kings of the Gentiles, Jesus goes on to say, and and, and all of their influence in that day believed that the greatness that they were trying to achieve was all about servants and power and having people kowtow to them. And so Jesus shows them that greatness is actually serving other people. And in the process of doing that, here's what the Bible tells us: it doesn't make sense. You become exalted. Serve other people. God lifts you up. I'm a Denzel Washington fan. I watch all of his movies. I follow him. Like I read articles about him. So, uh, a long time ago, this is when he's, his career was just beginning. Um, he was speaking to a group of people. They were young people who were trying to be, you know, uh, aspiring, successful uh, entrepreneurs and actors and and go on in the world and do great things. And he's telling them what success does to a person. And he mentioned, you know, some 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 some, some real things that success can play with you. It will, it will make you think eventually that life is all about you. And then he went on to talk about how successful he had been. That by his second movie, he was making lots of money. He had great reviews. Everybody was talking about him. And then he tells the story of how he went home uh, you know at the height of his young career and he's immersing himself back into his family and he goes and he starts bragging to his mama. And you know what happens when you start bragging to your mama, right? And so he says, Mom, like life is going awesome. Like I'm the talker of the town. My my first two movies are a huge success. I'm making a lot of money. I got great reviews. Can you believe that all this great stuff is happening to me? And so his mom, with not even a bat of her eyes, says, hmm, all this, stuff, all this great stuff is happening to you, huh? Did it all by yourself, huh? Well, tell you what, there's a mop, there's a bucket, why don't you grab your successful hands, and go ahead and mop this floor, and that's one of those things that you can do all by yourself. True story. And then she says, get the windows while you're at it. I mean, it's nothing like family to, to bring us down to the, the base level of who we really are. C.S. Lewis rightly says this. I think I misquoted this a couple weeks ago, but here's the right quote. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. And so when we're being humble, it's not about you claiming that you're worthless, that you're a nobody with no skills. It's not denying that you're good at what you do, that what, what God has blessed you to be able to do, how he's gifted you. Humility is deciding that you're going to think more about other people than about yourself. And When we begin to do that, when we, when we begin to do that, the Bible tells us the interesting thing that happens is is we find a measure of joy, not in um, propping up ourselves, but in propping up other people. And so that's the last thing I want to talk about here for a few minutes. How do we find joy? Like how do we how do we conjure that up? We often think, especially at Christmas time. That, that joy is about stuff. Like, I want to get a present. It's Christmas tree, and I want all the presents to be under it to be about me. Big ones, small ones, obtruse ones. Like, I just want presents. I want stuff. But the fact of the matter is, if even if we get enough stuff, even if you get the very things that you need and that you want, will that really bring you lasting joy? And, and I, we only have to ask the parents in the room, because, uh, you know, your, your kids are are probably old enough to, to be eager about Christmas and the joy that Christmas brings. They understand gifts and all that stuff, but probably all of our all, all parents have experienced this. You get your kid a toy, it's a pretty neat gadget. Like you spent some time thinking about it. You give it to him. Your kid opens it up. He has joy for about two minutes and he goes on to play with something else. And a lot of times, especially if they're a toddler, the thing they're playing with now is the box that the toy came in. And, if, and if, you know, if they're really good, they'll go back to playing with the pots underneath the sink, right? And that's, I mean, it's, joy is fleeting. The reality is there is no amount of stuff that can that's going to make us joyful for a long period of time. Joy comes from somewhere else, and that's really what we celebrate during Advent, right? That the source of our joy is not our circumstance or our situation. Joy is found in a person, the person that comes and brings joy to the world the person of Jesus. But here's the other thing that I want you to think about when it comes to, to finding joy. And this is something I think that we don't think about very often. Is that joy not only comes for those who, are, who, who live great lives, for people who are living a, a wonderful life and getting to eat the, the fruits of that. Joy comes for those who are nobodies. Right. This is is the message God is giving us. Joy comes for nobodies. Joy comes for those who are struggling. And yet in the midst of all those life struggles, we find that joy comes when we're thinking less about ourselves and more about other people. Joy comes when we find ourselves in a position to lift up the lowly. Because when we lift up the lowly, what happens? God causes a miracle to happen. He lifts you up. When we humble ourselves before God, God causes a miracle to happen. What happens? We ourselves get lifted up. When we trust in God, God causes a miracle to happen. We find ourselves lifted up to the acts of blessing, of building up other people, of encouraging other people, that we find our own hearts filled with joy. And I think that's what Christmas is all about. Joy to the world, joy in our hearts. And so when Mary says, God lifts up the lowly and the hungry go away full, the question for us to ponder this Christmas is, how in the world does that happen? I think every once in a while, God sends an angel, a named angel from the Bible, and he, that angel descends on that person, and he causes a miracle to happen, like the miracle that happened with Mary. But most of the time, God, used, God does the, uh, the extraordinary through ordinary means. He uses people like us, like you and me. When God lifts up the lowly and sends the hungry away full, it's because people like you and me understand the call of our lives to lift up the lowly. That's our task. He calls people like you and me to associate with those who are lowly. That's our task. He calls us people like you and me to make sure that people don't go away without being full. and. I gotta be honest. I have been impressed um, with the way that our church has done that. We've done that well. Like we partner with several um, local nonprofits and ministries, and we do that well. Particularly this year. You now we we have a. A, an ongoing consistent relationship with several non-profits here from uh, homeless shelters to, to places that take care of abused women uh, to uh, Florida Nations DC that works with our immigrant population here which is ever-growing in the suburbs of DC and uh, and so in this ongoing uh, communication and support that we have to them we're always giving them money and our prayer support but here's the neat thing that's happened this year Some of you, many of you, without our church's initiation, have gone and volunteered in these places, and you have given of your time and your resources to these places, and I would say in in doing that, you have contributed to their joy. But you know what I say? Here's what I think. The truth is we can do a lot more. And so, you know, we're not one of those churches that I'm not going to take up an offering today. and and give that offering to to all these these organizations because we already give enough to them. But if I can encourage you as you are thinking about how you express joy in your own family, think about this, in your Christmas spending, ask yourself, what can I do to make a difference in in the spaces around me? And see how God responds to you in that. Let's be those kind of people. Let's give ourselves to lifting up the lowly, And here's what I think we'll find. We'll find that our hearts will be lifted up. Let's give ourselves to be more humble before God. And here's what I think can happen. I think that God can lift us up. In the midst of all that, no matter what's happening, our lives can begin to find a little bit of joy. So there's one last impactful scene in Charlie Brown Christmas. And it's the one where Linus is answering Charlie Brown's question in regards to what is the meaning of Christmas? And Linus says it best. Check this out. I guess I really don't know what Christmas is all about. Isn't there anyone who knows what Christmas is all about? Sure, Charlie Brown. I can tell you what Christmas is all about. Lights, please. Amen to that. God comes to us in the most humbling of circumstances. He comes as a baby, right? Incarnates him, the second person of Trinity, as a baby. He's born to insignificant parents, born in the most insignificant circumstance, and that baby brings joy to the world. God lifts up the holy, but he brings down the proud. And so, Trinity Church, let's humble ourselves before God. Let's see this as our mission this year. Let's try to carry this out to look for those who need someone to come alongside them. And here's what the scripture promises in the process of you lifting up the lowly, but also of you humbling yourself, God will lift you up. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word. I pray that it would do what it's intended to do in the hearts of your people. Lord, being humble is, a, is something that's hard for us, even those who are experiencing hard times in life. This Humility is not a natural um, character trait of many of us, and so we need your help in this. Lord, help us to see Mary, who in, in the first century was someone that many would have overlooked, and yet, God, you looked down on her, sent angels to her, and chose her uh, to be one of the most significant people in all of human history. And Lord, we're not praying that we would be uh, chosen to do something like Mary. I mean, that's, that's a one-of-a-kind kind of a thing but Lord, we're opening our arms and surrendering ourselves to you that you would come and that you would choose us for that thing that we're supposed to do. That way that in our humility, we're supposed to come alongside uh, either those that are familiar to us or those who we don't even know yet. And Lord God, that we could do something, even something small to show your love to those who need to be lifted up. God, in all the ways that we are prideful of ourselves and of our abilities, of those things that we've achieved, God, we pray that we would selectively choose to be humble, God, that you wouldn't have to humble us. And as we humble ourselves before you in the sight of God, Lord God, that you would choose to lift us up. It's Christmas, Lord God, we pray for just measures of joy. I was um, blessed by all the kids running around this morning and uh, I don't know if it's just the the cocoa they drank this morning, or if that's their natural disposition as they're coming together, seeing the Christmas trees and uh, the frivolity of, of the Christmas season. God, would you give all of us adults here a measure of that joy as we go about our lives, God? That we would um, that we would see Jesus, we would think of Jesus, we would read of Jesus, and as we do, we would receive the joy that He's offering to us, not just at Christmas time but every day. And God, through us and the joy that we experience in life, loving and serving Jesus, God, that we ourselves will bring joy to the world. This is our prayer. Praise in Christ's name. Amen. And amen.